It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Michael Steindl. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. Today we're going to be talking to Dr Ewan Ritchie, Senior Lecturer, Centre for Integrative Ecology in the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the Faculty of Science, Engineering and Built Environment at Deakin University. He has a Bachelor of Science at James Cook University and a Doctor of Philosophy also at the James Cook University. He's also Director of the Media Working Group in the Ecological Society of Australia. Dr. Ritchie applies ecological theory with good doses of fieldwork to seek solutions to the challenges of conserving biodiversity. His interests span behavioural, community, evolutionary, landscape and population ecology, as well as conservation biology and phylogeography. Good morning, Ewan. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. That's a very long introduction. (laughs) And very interesting bio that you've got too. Oh, thank you. So it sounds like the study of nature and biodiversity has always been an interest for you. Yeah, look, I've always had a fascination with nature ever since I was a kid, uh, running around on you know reefs and, and walking around in forests, running around ponds, catching frogs and you know looking at dead birds and, and being fascinated. So I've always had a deep connection with nature and, then, and, and being fascinated, I think, just with nature in general. So I guess I was always had that inquiring mind and observing things, which is what scientists, I guess, need to have. And so my um, interest in nature just grew with time. And once I realised that that I could sort of study nature and ideally also contribute towards its management and conservation, I thought, why not? Fair enough, too. So I've got a really um, important question to ask you. What is phylogeography? Phylogeography is basically just studying the evolutionary relationships So looking at the genetics of species and looking at how that's also on top of the landscape. So you can look at uh, where species presently are, where they were in the past, and some of the things that might affect their distribution patterns. So we can look at their genetics and and sort of look at differences within species, also compare species. So it's essentially using using molecular tools and genetics, as I said, to look at kind of uh, geographic patterns as well and evolutionary history of those. And that's a really important thing to do, isn't it, to to Uh, find find out what's happened in the past? Absolutely, because it it gives us clues about what might happen in the future as well. So if we know where species occurred in the past and and how that might have affected their populations and their genetics, um, you know, whether it's to do with climate or whether it's to do with um, habitat features, we can obviously make predictions about what might happen to species in the future as well. Ewan, um, you speak of our natural heritage, the plants and animals and other organisations that help define Australia's identity as being in dire straits. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so some people might not realise that Australia arguably has the worst conservation record in the world, considering especially that we have amongst the highest GDP per capita now in the world, so we're a very rich nation. 
And yet, as an example, since European settlement a bit over 200 years ago, we've lost 30 mammal species, which is far and away... 30? Um, past 30. Wow. And to put it in context, over the same time period, uh, North America has lost one. Wow. So We're really we negligent. We, we have a shameful record for conservation in this country. And as I said before, you know, we're now one of the richest countries in the world per capita. So if anyone's in a good position to do something about conservation and conserving our species, we are. And it's also worth bearing in mind that we have a unique fauna and flora. So many of our plants and our animals are found nowhere else on Earth. So they're what we call endemic. So 90% or sorry, roughly 90% of mammals, um, marsupials, are found nowhere else. Um, on Earth, and about 85% of our plants. So if we lose these species, we lose them forever. And they're important for so many reasons, both you know, culturally, spiritually for some people. They have economic value. They have a whole range of values. So we really should be doing a better job. It seems Australia keeps excelling in a number of ways. As you said, not only with the... Um the richest nation in the world per capita, we're also the most polluting in the in the world per capita, and perversely, we're also the the richest continent on the planet per capita in in terms of um, renewables, and yet we're not doing anything about that, and we're excelling at extinguishing species as well. It's, it's a yeah, bit depressing. It, it, it is disappointing, and we could do so much better. I guess as a scientist, we're always looking for evidence-based decisions. Mm. So, you know, we know that renewable energy is a definite option, and it's got its challenges, there's no question about that, but you need to invest in things for them to work, and we just don't invest in science and in mm. renewable energy, etc., to the extent that we need to for those to succeed. Yeah, and it's been torrid on that score in recent years. You, you, st- you state that Australia has a biodiversity crisis on its hands and that that is not part of our consciousness or the consciousness of our politicians. And you give two key reasons, one being questionable political donations and processes and the other the gagging of the public service government and university sciences. Can you fill us in on that a bit more, please? Yeah, well, they're highlighted as two issues. And I think uh, the fact that donations can be made to political parties definitely requires questioning because, of course, you know, corporate entities don't just give money away freely for no reason. So they're obviously trying to get um, some benefit from that. And the fact that money can be given to parties and have that influence on them, I think, needs some serious examination, especially when it's not declared very quickly. There can be long time lags between when a donation is given to a party and when it actually Mm -hmm. has to be declared. And also the amounts that have to be declared as well. So there's real questions there about our political process and whether there's interference from companies trying, I guess, potentially get some benefit from their company's perspective, which sometimes might be at odds with uh, national interests and goals, mm. you know, such as preserving the environment. So that's one big well, issue. Yeah, well, one figure on that score, <coughs> excuse me, given recently was the, um, for every dollar the fossil fuels fossil fuel companies invest in our, um, in political donations, they're getting two and a half thousand or something back per dollar, aren't they? In, in yeah, terms of subsidies there's, there's, and... Yep. There, there's plenty of examples of, of subsidies as well as political donations from the fossil mm-hmm. fuel industry and the effect that has had on, on acting on climate change as an example. Another one that's equally, if not even more concerning, is that scientists themselves, both within universities but also in, within government departments, have actually been gagged. And so they're not actually allowed to speak out on issues, even if they're merely referring to published evidence for things. So as an example, during the alpine grazing trials, mm-hmm. which 
many would argue, was certainly not necessary because mm. there's previous scientific research to show that there was a damaging effect of having those cattle in there. That work wasn't allowed to be talked about by people within government departments or even just referred to. So that's just one example, and there's and many examples of that that we refer to in our conversation article about where scientists have been directly, essentially, um, bullied into not speaking out about these issues, which, again creates this problem because the public therefore don't realise the full extent of the damage that's been done to the environment and that there's scientific evidence for it as well. So how do they actually gag you? Is there a directive that comes down from head office or emails or what is it? Yeah, so in the case of the alpine grazing issue, a Melbourne University scientist was actually told by a minister um, that uh, their funding might actually be <laughs> withdrawn or to, uh, words to that effect oh, um, if they were to continue speaking out. So that's essentially a form of blackmail, but mm. uh, that, that, was, that was written up um, by the age at the time. <laughs> that's right. Um, but within government departments, there's also just directives that you actually cannot speak out about issues that might be, I guess, in conflict with government policy. And that's part of the existing contracts that people sign on to when they're employed. So I guess the question with that is that, you know, we live in a democracy and we celebrate that. But the question is, do we have, a, a, I guess, a transparent democracy when scientists, whether they be government employed or not, simply can't refer to published scientific evidence um, for certain issues? Mm. And the very people we're paying to to know about this and assess it aren't allowed to talk freely. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you're not able to do your job as a scientist because your um, conditions of employment don't allow that. It it makes it more difficult. I mean, I feel fortunate where I am. And I think the situation varies from from, uh, situation to situation. But I'm sure some of us probably remember a few years ago when CSIRO scientists weren't allowed to talk about climate change as an example. I do. Um, And that's, you know, deeply concerning because, you know, I think there's a a difference between simply reporting what we're finding um, scientifically versus advocating a particular stance. And they're, they're two different things, but we should... I think the public needs to needs to hear what scientists are finding and what the implications of that are for us, and then we together can decide what we do about that. So they're mm. two different things; they're related. But to simply say you can't even talk about what you're finding, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think is is deeply concerning. Yes. So following on the theme of the biodiversity loss, um, you quote that the uh, world economy is losing. 50 billion euros, so in round terms, um, 75 billion Australian dollars a year through lost ecosystem yeah. services <laughs> and predicted to lose um, 14 trillion euros, so in, in round terms again, 20 trillion Australian per year by 2050 if we don't take action now. They're staggering figures. How do you arrive at those, Ewan? Yeah, they are absolutely staggering. And what's even more staggering is they're probably likely to be gross underestimates. Really? Oh, no. So, when you when you consider, I guess, all the different services that an environment provides, so let's think about a forest, uh, you know, um, close to uh, Melbourne, we have our Mount Nash forests. Those forests help us capture water for our uh, reservoirs. They also store carbon, which, of course, helps us to fight climate change. They provide a service in terms of tourism potential. Um, they provide a whole range of benefits that... Um, and importantly have economic value, but I I wouldn't want to just reduce the environment to an economic value. As I said before, there's social um, benefits, Mm. um, spiritual benefits for many people, cultural associations for particular people and particular groups of people. So there's there's all these benefits. And when you start actually calculating all of these, 
you realise just how much the environment's worth. So when you then see how much or how little we invest in protecting the environment and managing the environment, you sort of scratch your head and think, well, our biggest asset we have is the natural world and it's literally our life support system. So without taking care of that, <laughs> um, we're going to lose a lot of money, as you've just mentioned. Um, it's estimated that we're going to lose, you know, um, yeah, 21 or $20 trillion by mid-century, which is just staggering. But there's mm. a whole range of other negative consequences that will occur too. Yeah. What you're saying um, is just music to my ears. You don't need to convince me. I, I was constantly trying to get letters in the paper during the um, Abbott reign, uh, trying to emphasise that the... Uh, economy is a subset of the environment, not the reverse, as Abbott seemed to think, that if any money was left over, we could spend some on the environment, not that the economy basically is an extraction of uh, everything in the economy is an extraction yeah. of the environment. I think, I think all political parties, uh, not just the Liberal National Party, but all political parties need to realise that the environment doesn't lose money, it makes you money. Mm. <laughs> and and this, is, this is an idea that I think people haven't grasped. And it's also a question of short-term versus long-term investments. So as an example, if we cut down our ash forests, that will make some money, but not very much. But if we conserve those forests through carbon capture mm. and storage and through protection of our reservoirs, it's a long-term investment that we are far better off economically. So we need to bear that in mind as well. Have there been studies done to actually quantify those sort of figures? Yeah, look, I don't have those figures at hand, but mm. in the case of the ash forest, you know, and that's obviously being used as a, a I guess, to talk about protecting them for the Great Forest National Park. It's in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, when you factor in again all the services, the ecosystem services that that forest region would provide. Mm -hmm. So this $20 trillion per year uh, by 2050 is estimated to be potentially 7% of global economic output at stake, That's right. uh, just due to loss of diversity. Why do you think that isn't having an impact on our politicians? Why aren't they waking up to these figures? Very good question. I think, unfortunately, we have very short election cycles. That's one issue. We've talked about the fact that there are definitely some vested interests there in terms of conflicting interests in terms of, let's say, fossil fuels mm. versus conserving the environment and the role that political donations have there as well. But I think, yeah, I think one of the biggest problems is that we're, we're very bad at thinking long-term and investing long-term. And if we were to do that, I think we might see a very different scenario. But I think there's also a lot more that they get done very early on, I think, in people's lives, and that's reconnecting people with nature and actually mm -hmm. understanding the value of nature. So, you know, we do learn about animals and plants in primary school, but not nearly to the extent that we should be. And and, um, and certainly not really the economic value of, of nature and as well as the other ranges of values that we talked about. So I think we need to approach this from a whole range of directions and not just sort of point the finger at politicians, but there's a lot more we could be doing about educating the public in general about the value of nature and why it's so important. I mean, other things that I think are quite interesting, research that suggests that, you know, if you live near a park or you have access to green space, you're more likely to have less mental health issues. If you protect nature, you're likely to have less crime, etc. So all of these things, again, point to the importance of nature. Yeah, well, actually, that was going to be my main question, that there is that well-established value of biodiversity to the human race in terms of reducing stress and crime and disease. So you've already mentioned a bit about that. How does it work with crime? 
Well, essentially, it's it's probably, again, this is not my area at all because I'm not a psychologist. Essentially, again, if you think about it logically, if you provide people with areas of um, open space and nature, and that reduces stress, as an example, and mental health issues, of course, are often associated with crime. So if you can obviously manage that and improve access to areas of open space and nature which are known to improve our health and Mm. both our physical health as well as our mental health, then they can be obviously linked to crime in some cases. So obviously the more green space you have potentially, um, you're going to see some benefits in that regard. So uh, it's not at all simple, but (laughs) I guess it just comes back to the fact that, you know, this deep connection we have with nature and how dependent we are on it for our personal well-being. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, and we are with Dr Ewan Ritchie from Deakin University, who is highlighting his concerns about Australia's biodiversity crisis. Getting back to what we were talking about in terms of getting people to become more aware of these benefits, I guess the real challenge is that more and more people are living in cities rather than <coughs> in the country, so they don't really get to see the biodiversity on a day-to-day basis. Do you think that um, cities themselves then have a responsibility to educate the public and um, and make them more aware of the the biodiversity value? Yeah, look, I I think we all have a responsibility. And, you know, whether that's cities, whether that's councils, whether that's politicians, mums and dads educating their children, I think we all have a responsibility. And we're only going to see improvement and change, I think, if we all take that responsibility on. So... It's true to say that there might be a disconnect for some people who live in the middle of cities and don't have a daily experience with nature. Having said that, lots of people do leave the cities to connect with nature. But also importantly, there's a lot of animals living within our cities that we're unaware of. So even within Melbourne, as an example, we have flying foxes that fly over our skies every night. Mm -hmm. We have the endangered southern brown bandicoot that lives around Cranbourne and those areas. So Mm. we have some really interesting animals that we share our homes and our areas with um, right in the middle of Melbourne. Yellow-bellied parrot? Orange. Orange-bellied. Or yellow sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, frogs, uh, mammals, reptiles, birds, incredible orchids, all within, you know, parts of Melbourne. So it's certainly not true to say that we can't find nature and experience nature within big cities. We certainly can. Well, it's interesting with birds too, because I've noticed just in my own area that the types of birds species is changing quite amazingly. And they, as you say, act as vital ecological indicators because they're so well studied and the population changes are noticed pretty easily and they highlight other issues that are, that are in the environment and also that affect other taxonomic groups. Yeah, that's right. And the birds have been changing for quite a while now so I remember as a kid growing up in the sort of you know eastern suburbs of Melbourne you'd never see crested pigeons um, mm. and now they're everywhere they are um, and you know that's one example and currawongs as well have moved into the suburbs um, that otherwise you only saw for part of the year or not pretty yeah. much at all so there's lots of changes that are occurring and some of that is probably to do with climate but also other changes as well in terms of uh, vegetation that's changing through the suburbs so, so as trees grow up or trees disappear, different birds will benefit or not from that. So, you know, there's, there's lots of changes occurring at the same time. I mean, our birds are responding to that as are other, other species as well. So the report that um, you had cited population growth and economic growth and climate change as the key drivers of the de- yeah. decline. Is the population the, the largest one or what is it? What are the... <laughs> 
Yeah, look, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think population growth is the biggest challenge that we face. And to ignore it is, is, is um, simply not helpful. We, we have a massive issue. We have a increasing population and also a population that is consuming more and more per capita. And and that that's a really important point because <clears throat> many people have argued that we should try and um, slow down population growth. And that would have some benefits to the environment, but not nearly at the speed that we need to see. What would make an even bigger difference in the short term is to actually reduce our per capita consumption. So we all need to think about, you know, do we need this new car or do we need this something else that's new mm. or can we live live without it? And, um, you know, that challenges people and it challenges, I guess, um, our kind of uh, way of living um, and our lifestyles, but it's also, we, we can't ignore it. <laughs> and so there's been research looking at that um, about, you know, what would happen if we reduced our per capita consumption and that's definitely seen as probably the biggest thing we could do at a, at a much higher level to actually reduce the impact on the environment. Because at the end of the day, you know, extractive industries are feeding that and it's, it's we, the, 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 the normal people in the street that um, are contributing to that. Mm. So, you know, we all, again, all have to take responsibility. We can't point the finger at mining companies and say you shouldn't mine because we all benefit from what comes from a lot of those mines. So um, it's about, yeah, reducing our own impact as individuals as well. And, of course, one of the other challenges inherent in that that people are reluctant to address is that it challenges the the um, gold economic standard that we choose to live by, that this infinite growth in a finite planet uh, rather than coming up with some new sort of economic model of a much more closed-loop economy, isn't it? Yeah, the, the economic uh, question is an interesting one because the, the current kind of, I guess, idea is that we have constant growth and we ideally aim for increasing growth. But <laughs> going back to being a sort of a population ecologist and wildlife ecologist, if you look in the natural world, <laughs> mm-hmm. no species can sustain constant growth and increasing growth for very long before they have um, serious corrections, which aren't very nice. (laughs) So, And we're doing that exactly right now. So we're living way beyond our means um, in terms of what the environment can support. And we're already seeing the impacts of that in different parts of the world in terms of hunger um, and and access to uh, resources and also the impact that obviously has on the rest of the environment. So there's no question that we need to really think carefully about how we can change um, that kind of idea that we can have constant growth. Mm. And steady state economy is obviously is one idea that's been proposed and there's probably others. Mm. But these are, these are things that our politicians and our leaders should be talking about if we genuinely want to see change and improvement. So, a, sorry. A, a 2008 report found that the largest area of tropical rainforest in Australia, the wet to- tropics of Queensland, is listed as the world's second most irreplaceable natural world heritage area. So barring only the Great Barrier Reef, it creates the greatest economic benefit of any of Australia's natural world heritage properties. You, you, and you're yeah, saying that's right. That so North Queensland. North Queensland's a very special place, and I have a personal connection with it, having spent about 15 years up there in um, my sort of undergraduate and and other studies, um, so living in Townsville, and I have a really deep connection with North Queensland, and it, it truly is a special place. And as I was saying before, you know, many of our mammals and our plants and other species as well, reptiles, amphibians, etc., are found nowhere else on Earth. And the wet tropics in particular, and the Great Barrier Reef as well, of course, um, has, is home to many of those species. And we're seeing <coughs> the impacts that we're having, whether it be habitat loss, um, in the case of the Barrier Reef, climate change, um, on those species. Um, 
And it's quite tragic to see that because uh, I guess, you know, in the mid-90s I was living in Townsville and there's the Barry Reefs on your doorstep and it's this wondrous thing. Mm. And to now know that um, only 7% of the Barrier Reef hasn't been affected by bleaching in this mm. last summer 7%. and that a large proportion of it is likely to die yeah. is, is, is gut-wrenching. And, Absolutely. You know, as a, as, a, as a parent with children and, you know, I'm trying to instill, I guess, a connection with the environment, a love of the environment, it's very hard to explain to them that they may never see the Barrier Reef or at least the way that it was when, when I was young. So, mm. <laughs> and, and I think that these are questions that we need to, again, answer. You know, how can we let this happen, especially when we of all countries are best placed to conserve our natural assets? Yeah. Just, just as an aside on that topic, Ewan, um, I, I, um, the the Barrier Reef is being used massively as a, an iconic um, advertising thing for action, and I totally agree with that and um, see the benefit of that. But my personal reading of the science is that it's gone anyway. That the, we're not going to be able to save the Barrier Reef. Um, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say that, and I, I know people who are working. Um, on the Barrier Reef and have been working on it for decades. And look, it's, it's, it's certainly true that the situation is dire, but we can do something about it. So, you know, obviously that requires acting on things like climate change, but also in terms of other things that threaten the reef, such as runoff into ocean and the land and the effect that can have as well. But there's, look, there's a whole range of things we can do. But with the, war- the warming we've locked in and with the acidification, I mean, the recent damage is, is up in the area where there is no runoff. It's all that northern section. Um, that's just yeah. misleading stuff by Hunt, isn't it? <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. Look, it's it's certainly true that situation is dire and we need to act pretty swiftly if we are to save the Great Barrier Reef and certainly the way that it um, was and, and how we um, currently see it. But uh, it's also... It's unknown, you know, how how much of the the Barrier Reef um, is going to die because when a coral is bleached... Uh, that that often can lead to death, but not always. So they can recover. Um, and the question is, you know, to what extent will the reef recover from this um, latest um, bleaching event? We'll see that in the coming months. But yes, I mean, that certainly shouldn't stop us from acting. And there's, you know, there's more extreme examples of, I guess, approaches that people are talking about in, in the conservation sense, particularly in, in regards to climate change. So where we're seeing the impacts of climate change on species and areas where they're currently living that they now can't because it's uh, too hot. People have even talked about the extreme idea of moving animals or species around. Mm. Um, so moving um, species that potentially, say, tropical species further south into cooler areas. Um, mm. uh, and, but you can think uh, just how much expense mm. is involved in doing that and the risks associated with that too because you're moving species into areas where they never lived before and how they might affect other species, which, yeah. again, just highlights, I think, that you know, fixing problems when the damage is severe is so economically costly and risky as compared to intervening early and stopping these things from happening in the first place. So not only do we see much bigger environmental costs if we wait too long, we actually see a bigger economic cost yeah. as well. So again, in terms of investment, it's a really poor decision. Well, getting back to that, that report found that for every dollar spent on management costs, earned actually... $85 in tourism spending. So even in yeah, pure economic terms, that makes a compelling case for conservation, doesn't yeah. it? 
and, and, and that's, yeah, it does. And that, that's just um, quite a common um, argument made for many parts of the world that for every dollar that you put in, mm. you're going to get multiple dollars back um, because of these ecosystem services that we've talked about, but for other reasons as well. So, you know, it's this idea that, you know, investing money in the environment is not going to make us money, but that couldn't be any further from the truth. Yeah. yeah. And, and to summarise your stuff about moving species around and stuff, the notion of further geoengineering to fix up our massive accidental geoengineering stuff up already is not um, one that we really seem well placed to uh, go down that path. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're coming up <clears throat> to a federal election pretty soon. And you've certainly um, had some thoughts on how the major parties rate in terms of protecting biodiversity. Can you clarify that a bit more? I guess you can judge how well um, certain parties rate by policies that specifically address the environment. And it's fair to say that the two major parties don't do particularly well on that front. Um, The Greens, of course, have had a long history in um, prioritising the environment as sort of a major focus of their party. Mm-hmm. But again, I'd rather not sort of reduce it to a, um, an argument about which political party is better. I think what we need as Australians and just as citizens in general is just to see leadership from all politicians and ideally um, agreement and cooperation between parties. I think protecting the environment is a much bigger issue beyond just politics um, for the reasons we've discussed. You know, it's important for a whole range of reasons. And it should really be a national focus that we all work together on. That might sound naive, but I think that's what we should be aiming for. You know, similar things can be said about education and other things where it's clearly a benefit to everybody. Mm. And um, politicians, whether you're in one party or another, should really be working together to try and improve this situation. And looking around the world, the, the countries that have taken that bipartisan approach are the ones that are starring, like Germany, aren't they? Exactly. I mean, the fact that, you know, places like Germany have invested so much in solar technology compared to us mm. is fairly shameful, <laughs> um, given how much sunlight we have compared to, say, Germany. Ross um, is fond of quoting when the, he had the Germans out here and they got really upset because they are uh, down the south, the west coast of Tasmania, and they said, this is your worst spot in the nation and it's better than our best spot for solar. And, and look, that's just one example. So we, we need better leadership in terms of prioritising things which will have environmental benefits, but again, economic benefits too. I mean, there's obviously huge potential for jobs creation um, and economic, genera- um, you know, ge- um, fueling the economy by investing in things like renewable energies as well. So, um, but we need to see that from all parties, not just um, one or the other. Just one last question, Ewan. In terms of protecting the biodiversity, which countries, uh, country or countries is doing well at the moment? Which country is doing well at the moment? Uh, well, that's, that's a really a hard question to answer. I'm not sure I'd be able to give you the exact answer because there's a historical context there as well. So some countries in Europe, as an example, have lost lots of species, you know, hundreds of years ago. Whereas part of the problem that we are experiencing in Australia is that, you know, Europeans arrived here, you know, essentially only yesterday in an ecological sense, but have Mm -hmm. done huge damage very quickly. But we're still losing species and we still have a lot to lose versus other countries that have essentially done all the damage and now they're trying to conserve what they have left. Um, So (laughs) that's a very tricky question to answer. But I think also what's interesting is um, how different um, people live with nature. So we've been doing some really interesting work um, in Romania um, a year or so ago and looking at how, as an example, 
people live there in the presence of predators, so that's wolves and bears, mm -hmm. and that's because um, their farming practices allow them to do that. So they have shepherds who protect their livestock, and so rather than, say, shooting bears or shooting wolves um, to get rid of them and reduce their impact on livestock, they accommodate them by different solutions. So I think, you know, and that highlights another thing, that we could be a lot more creative about our solutions to um, issues and where there are is conflict between, uh, let's say, economic interests and environmental interests. If we just took that broader view. Yeah. Thanks yep. for your time today, Ewan. That, that's been a fantastic discussion and um, certainly opened my eyes to a lot of areas of concern in this in the biodiversity area. Where can our listeners find out more information about today's discussions? information on the conversation website which is has the article and we discuss about the importance of nature and why we should be prioritizing investment in that and i also have a personal website as well which is just youandrichie.org so you can certainly look there for more information there's plenty there terrific thanks again thank you bye the beyond zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank beyond zero emissions and if you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we have done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Thank you.